If you have a Bible, we are in Matthew chapter 6. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but we are going to take a break during Advent and focus on one particular aspect of this series. You know that when you look at your Bible today, or you open your phone and you look at the verses on the screen, you notice that the Bible is divided into chapters and verses. Do you know that in the original, that was not the case? Do you know that in 1205, a guy named Robert Langdon, who was a um, professor in Paris, had a job of editing the Latin Vulgate, that is the Latin version of the Bible. So in 1205, he decided to break it up into the chapter divisions that you have before you. In 1551, there was a guy named uh, Robert Stephanus who, on the way from Paris to Lyon, in the driving rain to meet a printer's deadline, decided to take the Bible and divide it not only into chapters, he took Langdon's chapter divisions, but he divided it into verses. So when you have your Bible and you look and you see the verse and the chapter divisions, they were not there in the original, but we find them extremely helpful so that you can turn to Matthew chapter six. And Anna is gonna come up and read for us in just a moment, verses five through 11. Sorry, Anna, that wasn't fair. <laughs> Sometimes at Trinity, I get this question. You guys talk a lot about grace. You talk a lot about grace. You talk a lot about grace. And we believe that grace changes everything. It changes your heart, and it changes through your heart. It changes the world, God's special grace and God's common grace. But what about holiness? What about obedience? Well, chapter 5, friends, speaks about the what of the Christian life. Chapter 6 speaks about the how. Chapter 5 speaks about the actions of the Christian life. Chapter 6 speaks about the intentions of the Christian life. Chapter 5 speaks about the bad deeds that you potentially do. Chapter 6 speaks about the good deeds that you do, but for bad reasons. In Advent this year, we're going to take the three devotions that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount namely prayer, giving, and fasting. And we're going to focus on those over the next several months. But we're going to spend all of Advent thinking together about prayer. You know that prayer, almsgiving, and fasting were the three principal devotions of every Jew. They were the three central core di uh, disciplines of a Jewish life. They are, together with the Hajj and reciting the Creed, the five pillars of Islam. And Jesus who of course predates Islam, but comes after the founding of Judaism because he himself was a Jew, says for his disciples, those three basic core tenets are three disciplines of the Christian life, namely prayer, almsgiving, and fasting, are not just something to look at and ignore. They are to be embraced by Christians today. So as Anna comes up and reads for us, would you please give your attention to God's word? As she reads, beginning at verse 5, down through verse 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you give others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you now take this your word? Would you change our hearts by it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' own lesson on prayer can be divided into two halves. There's a warning and there's an example. There's a warning, you see it, in verses 5 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 15, he gives us an example of how we are to pray. Lower your eyes to the text. Do you see that in your bulletin? Do you see that in your Bibles? We're going to look at verses 5 through 8. We're going to do so under three headings. Who, how, and why. Who, how, and why. Let's jump into it. The principle that Jesus gives us here for prayer is this. Let me start with the warning. The warning is this that Jesus gives to these utterly repugnant Pharisees to Jesus who were praying publicly in ways to bring attention from other people. The warning Je Jesus gives us is this, that if you rest in the fleeting nature of human approval, you will be on a restless search for affirmation your entire life. Anybody ever longed for affirmation of other people? How elusive it can be. The warning Jesus gives is if you rest in fleeting human approval, you will be in a restless search for affirmation and you will be a hypocrite in your prayer life. That's the warning that he gives us. One of the chief characteristics of any child, those of you who have young kids, you know it, is that the child will say at the earliest of ages, hey, watch me, watch me, look at me. Hey, daddy, look at me. Your kids ever do that? And then as adults, do you know what? We don't, we have the same tendencies. We have noticed me, notice me. Have you seen my car? Have you noticed my job? Do you know how important I am? Like, do you know how much theology I know? The child's watch me daddy becomes the adults notice me. And it is so insidious in places like Tulsa. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, listen, brothers. You're acting like hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? And literally in Greek, it's hypocrites. It's the idea that an actor would wear one mask, one actor plays multiple roles. He'd wear one mask and then he'd switch scenes and he'd put on another mask. Two completely different people, same body, same person, two completely different roles. That's what Jesus is drawing from. He's quoting the old Greeks, thinking about their dramas together. Verse one could be literally translated, and you don't have it unless you have a Bible, but verse one in chapter six says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. It could literally be translated in order to theatricize before them, in order to act it out before them. 
there are two kinds of hypocrisy in the world. There's hypocrisy of duty, which is the thing where you, you condemn in public what you know that you do in private. That's called a hypocrisy of duty. But there's also another kind of hypocrisy called the hypocrisy of motive, which is where you do the right things but for the wrong reasons in order to be noticed by other people. And it's the second kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is trying to get at to these Pharisees. Because we all long to be noticed. It's a normal human thing to want to be noticed by other people. It's like if you ever see a man who's thirsty at sea, the allure of drinking the seawater becomes almost irrepressible as they're dying of thirst. And they'll take in this seawater as a way of saving their life. But in the end, what's it doing? It's actually slowly killing them. It's making them more and more dehydrated because the salt is drawing the water out of all of their organs. That's just like what human affirmation is to me. I don't know if it is for you. I'm sure it might be. But we drink it in like salt water thinking, oh, I'm satiating my thirst to be someone. And we're finding that we are drying up. Or it's like the Eskimos years ago in order to hunt wolves, you know what they used to do? They used to take meat and they would freeze that meat and they would stick in the middle of that meat a blade. And they would set that meat out in the middle of the forest and they would sit back and they would watch the wolves come from far and wide and they would lick that meat and they would devour that meat and they would just go crazy over it because it was free for the taking. They didn't even have to kill it. And somewhere along the way, these Eskimos would watch this as the wolf began to eat this meat. He would slice his tongue on the hidden blade inside. The wolf wouldn't know if it was his blood or if it was the animal's blood because his tongue was so numb that slowly he'd feel himself getting weak and wobbly. And these Eskimos would watch these wolves just die in a circle around this frozen block of meat. Friends, is that happening to you right now? Martin Luther said it's not our bad deeds that we need to be aware of. It is our good deeds that tempt us the most. And Jesus is saying here, listen, it's good to be noticed. It's right to be noticed. That's part of what it means to be an image bearer of the one true God. God made us to be an image of himself, to be a reflection back to him of his glory and grandeur and goodness and grace. It is a good and right thing. In fact, the Puritans used to say that you know what faith is? Faith is striving to be noticed by the Father alone and not by other people. Faith is striving to be known by the Father alone and not by other people. Faith is when you do something in secret that nobody else knows except the Father and that's enough. I, I was struck by that this morning when I was in my study early this morning and I heard, I don't even know who the guys are that pulled the trailers to the school this morning, but I heard them trying to start those diesel engines and it was like seven o'clock. And I was, I was just overwhelmed. Trinity also has been around for six years. Lauren and my family and I have been here for four of those. And after, I was just struck by the fact that these men, I assume they're men, men or women, uh, were pulling the trucks out this morning at seven o'clock in the spitting rain, 
34 degrees outside so that you and I could worship. Like, they didn't do it to be noticed by you. you don't, I, don't even, I still don't know who they are. <laughs> don't raise your hand, please. <laughs> but isn't it amazing that we can do things just for the smiling gaze of our Father and that's enough for us? Have you ever done anything just because you felt the smiling gaze of your heavenly Father who loves you? That's the opposite of what the Pharisees did. The principle here is that when you pray, you are to pray exclusively to God and God alone. And the temptation that you and I face, I certainly face this as a minister of the gospel, that one of my jobs and one of the elders' roles is to help you learn to pray. But we strive to pray, like when I prayed earlier, yes, you heard what I was praying, but I wasn't praying to you, I was praying to Jesus. But how many of you, when you pray, and how many times have I prayed where they become little sermonettes for other people to hear? Let's find the right word to use. Oh, now that was a good prayer. How many mm can we get? How many amens can we find? Listen, that is something, but the Bible calls that hypocrisy. When you are called to pray, Jesus says you are to pray to God exclusively. These are the lips of Jesus telling us how we are to pray to the Father. Do you pray like that? That's the who of prayer. You are to pray exclusively to the Father. The warning is that when you rest in, the fleeting, when in fleeting human approval, you will be restless for affirmation and you will become a hypocrite in your prayer life. But when you can rest, rest in your Father's love for you and His love for you alone, you find that you begin to be constant and active in your prayer life and it takes on a whole new life. Not because you're trying to impress or because you're trying to get his attention, but because you know you have his smiling gaze. That's who? Your Savior who loves you. Now, how? How do you pray? Lower your eyes to the text again if you can. It says... But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. How do you pray? Well, literally it says, go into your storeroom. It uses the same word as steward. You're a steward. You go into your storeroom, steward, and you ask the Lord, Lord, help me to be a steward for your kingdom with the gifts you've given me. Listen, I, as much as I want to be Mike Phelps, I will never be Mike Phelps. I can't, I'm, I'm Blake. I'm different than Mike. Mike can't pretend to be me. I can't pretend to be him. I go into my storeroom and it has a whole different set of resources. I'm given gifts that are different than Mike's and he's given gifts that are different than mine. So when we go and we pray, we're going to pray different things because we have different gifts. Lord, help us to use our gifts to maximize your kingdom in a way that works in the way that you've made us. 
What's the first lesson Jesus teaches us on how to pray? He says, go into your store. It's singular. It's not plural. You, you, yes, you, go into your storeroom. Go into your room and shut the door. You're not praying for so everybody else can hear you. You're praying to the Lord himself who has equipped you and he has given you certain gifts to be employed for his service. Ask for those to be used for his kingdom. I dare you to shut your storeroom door and to say, Jesus, would you help me to know how you've gifted me and help me to give myself for your kingdom, whether that's in art or engineering or law or medicine or ministry. Help me to give myself for your kingdom. You are unique. You are different. Your storeroom has different tools on the wall. Do you know what those are? You won't know what those are, friends, until you go and you shut the door and you spend time with your father and you let him sing over you, his love for you, and you let him remind you how he has uniquely gifted you. That's why some of you are so frustrated with God. It's because you're constantly listening to podcasts or hearing these other preachers or listening to me and you think, I want to be like that. Stop. You, the Lord has gifted you in a different way. And the collective effectiveness of our young church reaching the gospel and in the collective effectiveness of Three Rivers, the church plant we just planted in Grove, reaching Grove and Grand Lake will be dependent upon the members themselves understanding how God has uniquely created them and being okay with that and resting in the unique way that he has made each and every one of us special unto himself. Are you with me? Are you following me? All right. That's the beginning, beginning of how. You go into your storeroom and you shut the door. You ask, Lord, help me to understand myself better so that I can best serve you and glorify you in the arena in which you've put me. But not only that, it says when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't pray simplistically, but pray simply. One of the things that my family does when we pray sometimes at night is instead of hearing good old dad pray, we just go around and say one sentence prayers. Jesus, thank you for this. Jesus, help me with that. Like that is what Jesus commends. This prayer that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, the Lord's Prayer, is so simple, but theologians have been plumbing its depths for millennia. It's not the length of your prayers that makes them effective. It's the object to whom you're praying, no matter how short they may be. And Jesus here says, they ought to be pretty short. So the how is not only to ask the Lord to show you more of how he's made you in your storeroom with the door shut, doing it in secret, but it's also to become more frequent in your prayers by praying shorter prayers. I was, um, I was, uh, this became very apparent to me because some of you know that last week we had Mark Kuyper here who was planting Three Rivers Presbyterian Church at Grand Lake and we've sent 11 families out from our church to, who live at Grand Lake to start that church which is awesome and you should be very proud. You should be very proud in the most godly of senses that the Lord has used you to plant a church. It's awesome. But when we were taking communion, I just sat back at Grove last Sunday night and I just let Mark lead the service. And I sat in the back row and I, and I had a hard time not getting emotional about it because it's exhausting to try to see the Lord plant another church. 
and I was tired. And we, I came up for the Lord's Supper, just like everybody else, and I let Mark serve it. And he served it to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he prayed the simplest of prayers for me, and I just lost it. And he said, Lord, if Trinity is a shining star in the PCA, or if it's a church plant that peters out, may Blake know that he has the smiling gaze of his Father in heaven. That's enough. And it is. Even though so many times I'm like you, I'm a wolf licking a block of meat thinking that it's going to satisfy me. You pray to the Lord exclusively. How do you pray? You do it in secret. You go into the storeroom. You ask the Lord to show more of yourself. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? Jesus says you pray because your Father knows the needs that you have even before you ask Him. You pray, friends, because you are a son and a daughter of the living God. It's Thanksgiving weekend. You feel like you're a son or a daughter of your father, of your mother, but I want you to know that behind that father and that mother is an eternally, beautifully, holy, loving father in heaven who is smiling at you. And for some of you, it's hard to get the concept through our heads and into our hearts that God is a father because we don't have great relationships with our dads. And I know that that's difficult for some of us. But I want you to imagine if you did, what would it be like? Your relationship with your heavenly father is far better than that. He sings over you his love. We sing songs and worship to Jesus, but they are Jesus also singing those same songs over us. The old mystics in the 11th and 12th century in Christianity used to write poetry. They would write lullabies. You know that? They would write lullabies to teach to their children, but they wouldn't teach them to their children so that they could sing them over their kids exclusively. They would write them over their children so that those children would know that their heavenly father through their voice is singing those words over them in love. Hosea in chapter 11 describes God as in verses 1 to 4, you can look it up if you have your Bibles. He describes the father as one who bends down to feed his young children, who binds up their wounds, who brings them in in love, and who protects them. Do you know that your father knows you so well, that he loves you, that he is protecting you? Why do you pray? You pray because you've got a father like that. In the Bible, many of you know that Jesus himself prayed, Abba, Father. There is no place where the word Abba is ever used of God the Father throughout all of Jewish literature until Jesus prayed that prayer. Because Jesus is your brother who is opening up the curtain for there to be a new way for you to relate to God, not as someone who's distant and far away, but as a tender father who holds you in his hands and who sings over you his love. He is your Abba, your father who adores you. There's an old classic French film. In English, it looks like Serrano 
of Bergerac, but in French, the real name is Siriano de Bergerac. And it's a story of this young man named Christian who's trying to woo this beauty named Roxanne. And he stumbles over his words. He doesn't really know how to speak effectively. And so this older gentleman named Serrano hides in the shadows wherever Christian is. And he tells Christian what to say to Roxanne. It's a funny film. And so this man is standing before Roxanne and he is trying to spout out, you are beautiful like the dung on the pig's foot. And Serrano say, no, 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 no. You say, you are beautiful like the lilies of the field. You are beautiful like the lilies of the field. And this whole movie, he's trying to just work at trying to communicate to Roxanne his love for her. And Serrano is feeding him these lines. And whenever Christian stumbles, Serrano steps in to rescue him and save the day. And eventually Christian woos Roxanne's heart and they get married. But the echoes of Serrano's words transcend the film and by the end of the movie you really know that Serrano was able to speak these words about Roxanne so beautifully because he himself loved her and it's the parallels aren't exact but they're very similar to what you see in scripture we sometimes don't know what to say to God but the Holy Spirit Romans 8 tells us is groaning for us with words Jesus says you don't know what to pray in John chapter 13, but the Holy Spirit will intercede for you to help you learn what to pray. And as you pray to the Father in heaven, we struggle to know how to communicate to him. But you know what? You have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, hey, you see him? You see him? Yeah, I know he's struggling, but listen. I am his resume. I am his record. I am his key fob to enter in. I am everything that he needs. My words are his. He adores you for your, your splendor and your beauty and your holiness. And friends, you are covered with Jesus. If you trust not in your restless strivings for significance and affirmation, but if you trust in the matchless name of Jesus and you rest in his finished work for you, and that is enough, then you're able to take refuge before your Father. And it does change your prayer life. Because you pray not as an alien, not as a stranger, not as a guest. You pray as a son who is heir to all that Jesus is an heir to. Amen? Amen. It is beautiful. And that ought to change the way you interact with people around Owasso and in Bartlesville and in Tulsa and in Catoosa and Claremore and Skytook. It ought to change the way you interact with people because yes, Blake Altman, I happen to be the minister of Trinity Presbyterian Church, but I'm the son of the living God. And when Jesus looks at me, he's proud of me. It doesn't matter how many people are here on Sunday or if the church even survives. He loves me because he loves me. And he says affections upon you and upon all those who are in Christ before the dawn of time. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, friends, Luther was right. It is often not our bad deeds that trip us up the most. It is oftentimes our good deeds done with bad motives. And just like you read as Jason led us in confession, though your conscience accuses you, though you've never kept any of the commandments, the Lord's record of righteousness is credited to your behalf. And the way that you celebrate that is through a meal, just like you had a Thanksgiving meal. We're about to have another one. It's called the Eucharist, the meal of thanksgiving, communion. And as you come, 
friends, I invite you to come. Praying in your heart the Lord's prayer as you come this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive us, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thou is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As you come to the supper this morning, come. Because you pray exclusively to a father who loves you. You pray simply. You pray in joy. Why? Because you are a son, you are a daughter of the king who extends his arms open wide to you and he beckons you to come and to enjoy his love. Let's do that together as we prepare for the supper this morning and come repentantly, come broken. It is a meal for broken people, not for put together people. It is the meal for those who are desperate. It is not a meal for the show-offs. Nobody in Owasso is impressed by that. That's why there are people running from the church because the church is full of hypocrites. You can add us to the list, but yet we come repentant every week, broken by sin, yearning for people to be at peace with the Lord. And it starts by us learning to be a people who are confident and bold in our prayers. So let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to help us be such. Father, we pray that you will help us, that you will help us to be people who pray in light of the warning that you give us here, Lord Christ, to pray to God, your, our Father, not to others, to pray simply and not in show-off mode, and to pray, to pray because we are your beloved sons and your daughters. Thank you, Father, that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And would you help us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at our time of need. And would you help us this Advent season as we consider prayer together to become a little less hypocritical in our prayer lives, to be so bold as to try to pray when it may be uncomfortable for some of us to do so. And would those, Lord, who have a long list of accusations against you, Lord, would you remind them even now as they come to the table that you love them? and that the circumstances of their life are no accident, but they are precisely what they needed to bring them to the point of repentance and joy in light of your smiling embrace. And so we pray all these things in the name of Christ our Lord, amen.